Our Old Testament lesson comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 9. Daniel, chapter 9, hear now the word of the Lord. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame as at this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws which he set before us by his servants the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out against us, upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. This is the word of the Lord. Daniel 9 is a great example of a prayer that prays, Hallowed be thy name. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Daniel acknowledges God is the covenant-keeping God. Uh, there's a problem, though. Israel has sinned. And so the, the heart of the prayer is on our confession. We have sinned and done wrong. 
And he, he details the sins of the people in rebelling against the Lord and admits God's judgment is just. He re- reflects back on how Moses had said that Israel would go into exile if they continued to rebel. And sure enough, where's Daniel? Daniel's in Babylon. And in Daniel's day, Israel is still in exile. But as he reflects upon the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah had said 70 years would, would pass until the, re- the restoration from exile. The promised time has come. The faithful, covenant-keeping God has said that he will restore Jerusalem. And so Daniel prays that God's holy name would be vindicated. His first petition is, hallowed be thy name. May your name be, be treated as holy. You know, hallowed be thy name doesn't just mean holy is your name, but that may your name be treated as holy. May your name be sanctified. And Daniel realizes that if, just, if you think about where Daniel is and where the people of God are, God's name is in trouble. Because it looks right now as though God's name, God's promises aren't happening. Everything is going contrary to the way things should be. For God's name to be hallowed, for God's name to be sanctified, for God's name to be treated as holy, something's going to have to change. And you'll notice that Daniel doesn't think that that something is, we just need to do better at obeying God. After all, all of Israel's efforts and attempts at sanctifying God's name went kaput. God is going to have to act in order to sanctify his name. God is going to have to act to do something, to do what he promised Moses that he would do. God is going to have to be faithful to his promises. And as we'll see, this fulfillment of the promise isn't just about, oh, what's going to happen in Daniel's own day? Because the fulfillment of the promise will come when Jesus rides the donkey into Jerusalem. When Jesus comes in order to finally do what humanity had failed to do, to finally do what only God could do in joining himself to our humanity in order that he might accomplish what Adam had failed to do, what Israel had failed to do, what David had failed to do, what we could never have done. Daniel sees the broken down church in his day much as we may look around at the broken down church in our day, as the city of God appears to lie, lie in bondage to the false glory of the city of man and prays that God's holy name would be vindicated. Oh God, have mercy upon your people, not because of our righteousness, but because we are called by your name. Your reputation, the sanctity of your holy name, O oh God, is at stake. Let your name be regarded as holy. And this will only happen as the nations are converted to your will, as your church grows in the grace and the wisdom of Christ. We need to have the same confidence as Daniel and pray the same sort of prayer as Daniel. God has placed his name upon you. He has done what he has promised. And the reason why God will answer your prayers is is not because you're so great, but it's because you are called by his name. And that's why Daniel says it's because your reputation, O oh God, is at stake. Therefore, you should act. Our New Testament lesson comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, starting in verse 12. 
Hear now the word of our God from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, 
but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say, as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus has come so that the name of God would be glorified. Jesus has come to accomplish what Daniel had prayed for. Jesus has come that the name of God might be glorified, the name of God might be sanctified. When Jesus says, for this purpose I have come to this hour, Father, glorify your name, the voice comes from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. When will God glorify his name again? Well, that's where Jesus goes next. Because the name of God, the name of our Father who art in heaven, is glorified in the death of Jesus. Jesus speaks of his own coming death in that way when he says that, that when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And John tells us, he said this to say what kind of death he would die. John seems to recognize that lifted up could be confused with his ascension. Ah, in his ascension he'll be glorified. No, John says, in his death, as he's lifted up on the cross, Jesus is glorified. The name of God is glorified. Jesus himself is glorified. The glorification of Jesus on the cross, because this is where Jesus will accomplish the sanctification of God's holy name. This is where... His glory is revealed as he takes upon himself the wrath and curse due to us for sin. The, the first petition in the Lord's Prayer is, Hallowed be thy name. The, the Heidelberg Catechism has a nice way of putting this. What does hallowed be thy name mean? Well, first, grant us, first of all, to, that we may rightly know you and sanctify, glorify, and praise you in all your works in which shine forth your almighty power, wisdom, goodness, righteousness, mercy, and truth. Grant us also, second, that we may so direct our whole life, our thoughts, words, and actions, that your name is not blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. When we, when we ask God, when, when we bring this petition to God, hallowed be thy name, we are asking that God's name be sanctified. To, to hallow is the, the verbal form of holy. Uh, if you, so we, we wouldn't want to translate it to simply holy be your name. It's rather may your name be made holy. May your name be sanctified. Now it's the, the same word that's used to refer to our sanctification. And really we should connect these two things. God's name being sanctified and us being sanctified. Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy people. May we become fitting in our, in our participation in God's holy name. Because of God's sanctified name, you have become a sanctified people. Because God's holy name rests upon God's holy people. Our you know, what is sanctification? Well, sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the inner man after the image of God and are enabled more and more 
to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Sanctification includes two parts. There's that first part where we are renewed in the inner man. This, this is where Paul will speak of you as holy. And the reason he does this is because if you've been united to Jesus, then you are holy. And you might be saying, uh, but pastor, you don't, you don't know what I've done. If you're in Jesus, then you're holy. In fact, in that respect, you could not possibly be more holy than you are right now. Because if you are united to Jesus, if his life is now yours, then you are holy in God's sight. And when he looks at you, he sees you in his son Jesus. And so, so it's, there, in that respect, you couldn't possibly be any more holy than you are. Now, now I know all of, us are, all of us are thinking, I could be a bit more holy. And that's the second part of sanctification. And are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. That there is, there is and should be growth in the Christian life where we continue to progress in becoming more and more of who we already are in Jesus. So sanctification is the hallowing, is the sanctifying, the making holy of God's people, making us holy in making us more like our Heavenly Father. The Apostle Peter will put it this way in in 2 Peter 1, verse 4. God has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, through his promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That's pretty strong language. We've escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire and even yeah, that, that through God's promises we become partakers of the divine nature? We become, I mean, this is, this is powerful stuff. But then the same Peter who says that in verse 4, in the very next verse, goes on to say, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray, sanctify your name, we are praying that God would enable us and others to glorify him in, in everything whereby he makes himself known. And that he would dispose all things to his own glory, as our shorter catechism puts it. And that's what John's praying for in John 12. That Jesus, Jesus is praying that God's name would be glorified in him. Jesus says that when he is lifted up, when he is hung on the cross, he will draw all people to himself. The cross will be the glorification of Jesus. The cross will be where the, the holiness of God is revealed. Now, we often think of God's holiness simply in terms of how God is pure and exalted, set apart from sinners, which, I mean, that's, that's all very true. But God's holiness is also that which impels him to draw near to us and to draw us near to him. That's why I quoted the Second Peter passage. That God has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, through his promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. 
God's purpose has always been to unite a people to himself. He wants us to become partakers of the divine nature. In the incarnation, God became all that we are by nature so that we might become all that he is by grace. That's why the first petition of the Lord's Prayer is, Hallowed be thy name. How often do our prayers start there? How often do our prayers start with the focus on the sanctification of God's name, that God's name would be sanctified, that God's name would be made holy, that God's name would be honored and praised and glorified. Again, the the Heidelberg Catechism's way of putting it is really helpful. Grant us, first of all, that we may rightly know you and sanctify, glorify, and praise you in all your works in which shine forth your almighty power, wisdom, goodness, righteousness, mercy, and truth. Grant us also that we may so direct our whole life, our thoughts, words, and actions, that your name is not blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. How much time do you devote in your prayers to the first petition? Hallowed be thy name. Uh, Lord, I want to know you. I want to know the the power of, of your resurrection, the fellowship of your sufferings. Do you want to know God? then pray for it. God, grant that I might know you. And if you want to know God, then in your prayers, praise Him for His great works, His mighty deeds, both in creation and providence, as well as His great works of salvation. A number of weeks ago, as we were going through the Ten Commandments, we, we looked at the, the, God, the, the, how God's name is holy. The Third Commandment warns us not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. Because God's holy name reveals his character, his attributes. Throughout the Old Testament, God revealed himself by various names. To Abraham, he proclaimed himself El Shaddai, God Almighty, the God who has the power to do all that he has promised. And to Moses, he revealed himself as as Yahweh, I am who I am, the God who remembers his promises and is faithful to his covenant. So when, when Jesus says, that we should pray, hallowed be thy name. Which name is he referring to? Well, it's the name he just taught us to use. Our Father, who art in heaven. If you think think about the revelation of God's name throughout history, the name of Yahweh was used back in the book of Genesis. So they knew the name. They called on the name of Yahweh before but they didn't fully understand what it meant until the Exodus, until at Sinai, when God reveals his name in his salvation of Israel from, from Egypt. When God, Sure, God had done some mighty-ish things in Abraham's life, but nothing compared to the mighty power displayed in the Exodus. The mighty power that he displays when he, when he brings Israel across the Red Sea and drowns Pharaoh's army <laughs> behind them and brings them through the wilderness and feeds them with, with manna, gives them water from the rock, reveals his glory at Sinai. God reveals something more of who he is so that we understand what that name Yahweh meant. In the same way, God had said to Israel, Israel is my son, my firstborn. But do you really know what father means? until 
the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us, then God reveals who He is as Father. And that's where the Gospel of John has laid out for us, the Father has always been Father. The Son has always been Son. In Jesus, we see what it means for God to be our Father who art in heaven. And that's why at the Jordan River, when John baptizes Jesus, we, we, we see the, the heavens opened and the, and the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest upon him. And, and a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all appear at the Jordan River for the baptism of Jesus. And then it's only actually just a couple chapters later in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And so when we pray, our Father, who art in heaven, we immediately add, hallowed be thy name. Because in this name, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we have been baptized, we have been incorporated into Jesus, that we might share in the life of God's beloved Son. You were once aliens and strangers. But now, you're not just citizens of his kingdom. You are children of your heavenly Father. You have been united to his Son, Jesus Christ, so that all that belongs to Jesus now belongs to you in him. The inheritance that he has received, sitting at the right hand of the Father, has now been promised to you. And in your baptism, you have received the first fruits of that promise in the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, to think about how to pray, hallowed be thy name, I'd like you to flip back to Psalm 111, the psalm that we sang earlier. I've, I've often encouraged you to pray the psalms in these, so I thought I'd just, in a sense, model it for you in Psalm 111 today, because as we think about how to pray, hallowed be thy name, well, uh, that's at the very heart of what Psalm 111 is doing. The psalmist starts, you know, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. When we pray, hallowed be thy name, this isn't just a personal private thing. If we love the Lord our God with all our heart, then we are to demonstrate our love and thanks to him before his people. So I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. The scriptures just can't imagine a Christian who is detached from the church, from the congregation. Hallowed be thy name comes in the context of saying, Our Father. We come to God together with all his people, and we come giving thanks with my whole heart. And we come giving thanks with our whole heart. We come in the congregation of the upright because of God's works. The name of God is revealed in what he has done. Really, the the heart of Psalm 111 consists of these, these verses celebrating the works of the Lord. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Do you do you like to study? Some of you might respond, Oh, I don't like to study. That's because you're thinking about school. Now, if I asked you to to explain to me how the Marvel Universe works, some of you 
could give me exquisite detail because you have studied very well. You, you know, the things that you love, you know, take, take your favorite series of novels and, you know, you probably know every single character and, I mean, ask me sometime about The Lord of the Rings, quiz me on it, see if you can stump me. Ha! Good luck with that. I mean, but that's, we study what we love. If we really care about something, then we love to study it. So if we love God, then we will study Him. We will want to know what He says and what He has done. So in that sense, studying the Word of God is studying what He has, what he has said, what He has done, who, who He has revealed Himself to be. Because when you study the, the mighty deeds of God, I mean, sure, you, I mean, in one sense you're studying theology because his, you're studying who He is. You're studying ethics because who He is has something to do with what sort of life. But it's also you're studying history. You're stu- in, one sense, in one sense, everything is all connected. And that's the... Because what God has done in history is, is what he has done to save us and deliver us. And this is what verses 3 and 4 say. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Because you, O God, have revealed your splendor and majesty in your works. Therefore, I know something about you. Your righteousness endures forever. And because you have caused your wondrous works to be remembered, I know that you are gracious and merciful. I learn who you are from what you do. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. Just as you provided food in the, in the desert for, for, for your people Israel, so you have continued to provide food for us, O Lord. You have continued to give us all that we need for life and godliness. You have been faithful to your covenant. You have remembered what you said you would do. You have shown your people the power of your works in giving us the inheritance of the nations. God did this for Israel in, in giving them, in giving them the, the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now... You have showed us this, O Lord. You have revealed your power by giving Jesus the inheritance of the whole earth, the fulfillment of all that you promised to Abraham, to Israel, to David, even all the way back to Adam and Eve. So yeah, we, we study what God has done in history and, it, and we see who God is and we see what God calls us to do. Hallowed be thy name starts by asking God to sanctify his name in our understanding, that we might study and know the mighty deeds of God. But it's not just a study and know for sort of, so that I have lots of trivia information in my head, but that we might live in a way that sanctifies God's name. And verses 7 and 8 in Psalm 111 give us that transition. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. Notice there, that's the, so the, the statement about them they are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. Now it moves to the imperative. This is how we are to live. And you might think that if you, if you want to learn ethics, then you should study the commandments of God. But notice here the psalmist says to look at the works of his hands. Certainly, by all means, know the commandments of God. But if you want to see how to live, you also have to look at what God has done in history. Look at what God has done in 
this is why when you think about the law, the Torah, that's the five books of Moses. All of Genesis is Torah. All of Genesis is law. You won't find very many commandments there. You'll find mostly a story. You'll find the history of God's dealing with his people. That's part of Torah. All through Exodus, all through Numbers, commandments are interspersed with stories. Why? Because you can't divide them. You, don't, you shouldn't just sort of say, oh, here's the, here's, the, here's the statutes, that's law, and then here's the stories, that's something else. No. It all goes together. If you want to see how to live, look at what God has done in history. God's ways and his works go together. And part of it is that when you are living the way God commands, you are living in tune with the way God made things. I can trust your precepts, O Lord, because the works of your hands are faithful and just. The whole psalm comes to its crescendo in verse 9. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. When we pray, hallowed be thy name, we are declaring that God's name is holy. Yes, we are celebrating who he is and what he has done. We are also saying, I want my life to reflect your holiness. I want to be holy as you are holy. I want to know you. I want to share in your holiness, which is astounding because that God would say, say this to us, that he would want us to be partakers of his own nature, that we would, that we would share in his, in his life. That is an astounding thing. And so finally, in verse 10, the psalmist addresses us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. Even as the psalm as a whole calls us to get our, our theology and our ethics from, from history, so the psalm concludes with this summary. That holy and awesome is his name. This is where we find who God is. He has revealed himself through all generations. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What we think about God is at the foundation of everything else in life. If you would know how to live in God's world, then you have to start with fearing God, fearing the Lord. How do you start that? Well, in your prayers. Start off with, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Because so often in our prayers, we get so quickly focused on ourselves and our situation that we lose sight of who we're talking to. But if we spend time at the beginning of our prayer saying, hallowed be thy name. Here, you have done great and mighty deeds. Faithful and awesome is your name. Then we begin more and more throughout the rest of our prayers to organize everything else, orient everything else back to who God is rather than it being all about me and what I want. When we pray, hallowed be thy name, we pray that God would reorient our hearts to sanctify his holy name. Because we're not praying that our name would be glorified. We're praying that his name would be sanctified. Our prayers shouldn't be primarily about us. 
Our prayers should be primarily about Him, that His name would be holy. Because then, when we see ourselves rightly related to Him, then we'll get to the petitions that have more to do with us later on in in the, the Lord's Prayer. But when we first, we need to get reoriented back to who we are in the story. He's God. We're not. And when we see his holy name for what it is, that's how we learn how to speak about ourselves. Because the first lesson of prayer is that we must learn to speak about God. We must be more concerned for the holiness of his name than for our own. And if we learn how to pray this way from the scriptures, then our prayers will become less self-centered. Our prayers will become more focused on who God is, what he has done, and therefore how we fit into the story of what God is continuing to do. So let's pray. Holy Father, we, we come to you and we pray that your name would be hallowed, that your name would be sanctified, that, that we may rightly know you, that we may sanctify, glorify, and praise you in all your works, because you have made known your mighty power, your great wisdom, your goodness, your righteousness, your mercy, and your truth. And you have made this known, especially in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who was lifted up on the tree that he might draw us to himself, that in his glorification we might see his holy name. And so we pray that you would help us, that, that we may so direct our lives, our thoughts, our words, our actions, that your name would be sanctified in us and not blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised through Jesus Christ, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.